Thank you for listening to Made to Be, a podcast exploring the surprising professional paths of extraordinary women in business. I'm Kristen Berman, co-founder and CEO of Philly Made Creative, a marketing and media production agency. Listen as I facilitate powerful conversations with women who are masters of their crafts. Learn about their journeys and just what it took to become who they were made to be. With any sort of addiction, it's really painful because you see all of the the positive that they bring um, and the potential. And so and I'm going to get emotional here. Um, and so it's really difficult to square, um, you know, potential versus the reality of the situation. And so um, I am really at peace with with his passing and, and I'm thankful for um, being able to, to learn the lessons from his life because, right, if we don't learn from people's successes and their, um, their failures, then, you know, what are we here for? Today, you'll hear from Rachel Rowe, Lincoln's global and regional auto show marketing manager at Ford Motor Company. She exudes compassion, forgiveness, and strength, a walking, talking embodiment of personal transformation. Rachel taught me a lot about what it takes to reinvent yourself and how to let go of the past. We shared some laughs, some tears, and a lot of wisdom. Listen to how a global marketing manager of one of the top auto manufacturers sees the world and why it's so important to look forward in life. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Uh, The Made to Be podcast was designed to empower women in their professional lives uh, and finding ways to balance that and and, uh, getting through challenging experiences. And the way that I'm really crafting this is finding women like yourself to share their stories. So I appreciate you being willing to share your story and what it took for you to get to where you are today. Of course, I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, so why don't we just get started? Um, First, if you could just tell us a little bit about what you're doing, you are the Lincoln Global and Regional Auto Show Marketing Manager for Ford Motor Company. And what does that mean? What do you do day to day? So basically for the Lincoln brand, which is the luxury automotive brand at Ford Motor Company, um, I manage all of the auto shows for the United States and Canada. So from global to regional, which basically means a global show is a large, um, large piece of infrastructure that we bring to a city like New York or LA or Toronto. And typically there is some sort of press engagement at global shows, which means, you know, a media announcement about a product. The smaller, more regional shows are ways for us to support our dealers who sell our product. And we come in market with vehicles and um, some infrastructure to support the brand and just engage with consumers. So I manage all of that work with our suppliers and engaging with our dealers to make sure that we're fully represented in the United States and Canada. So how did you how did you get to this point? Because you have been uh, you you had started like take us way back back to when you were a young girl. You were in you grew up in Marietta, Georgia. Is that right? I did. I was born in Atlanta, and um, my my dad is from Atlanta. 
Um, my mom is from Florida, but she went to nursing school in Atlanta and that's where they met. And we moved to the suburbs of Atlanta, which is Marietta is a suburb of Atlanta. When I was a young kid, um, I started kindergarten in Marietta and went from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade um, in the same school system. So um, I think, I mean, for me, I've always been an independent spirit and my dad even, that was my nickname as a kid growing up was Little Miss Independent because I am the oldest and I'm the only girl. So um, Southern culture is a, a bit traditional. I don't know how familiar you are with Southern culture, but Southern culture is very traditional. Um, you know, it's nicknamed the Bible Belt because people really value very sort of um, Christian traditional values that, um, while great, sometimes can be a bit constraining to those of us that are minorities, specifically women. So I always struggled with sort of the culture that I was immersed in in the South, which I love very much um, because my parents, both sides of their family are Southern. And then knowing that me, um, the way that I'm just made up, the way that, that God made me, I'm just a very independent person. And I don't necessarily fall into the traditional sort of constraints that society puts you in and that Southern culture tends to revere, which is, you know, getting married very young, having kids very, very young, typically under the age of 30. Um, you know, a lot of women typically don't make more money than their husbands, or sometimes they don't work at all. And they're just, um, they're stay at home mothers, which is a great decision if that's for you. But if it's not for you, where does that leave you in that sort of culture? Um, you can feel like a bit of an outsider. So for me, I knew very young that I wanted to be independent. I wanted to make my own money. I wanted to um, go to college. And I think that just came from looking at the women in my life, which my grandparents had a big impact on my life. Um, they lived in Atlanta in a, in a neighborhood of Atlanta called Inman Park. And I spent a lot of time there because both of my parents worked full time. So um, from the time I was born up until I started kindergarten, I was dropped off, you know, Monday through Friday, they were at their house um, every day. They were, they were my babysitter. So um, my grandfather retired the year I was born. So, and my grandmother was a, a homemaker. So that was a great experience. But when you watch, you know, a different generation, like your grandparents, what are their cultural norms and seeing that dynamic between my grandfather who made all of the money and then my grandmother who was the homemaker and, and the tensions that come with that and sort of, um, the gender roles that come with that. It was just a very eye-opening experience. And I think I myself am an old soul and I just am very observant. I like watching people. I like observing how they see the world, um, how they interact with others and sort of taking the good and learning from what I consider to be the bad to try to evolve and be the best version of myself that I can be. Because I knew that I was not going to be a homemaker. I did not have that, whatever that feeling is. So where does that leave me? And I think, um, luckily, I had grandfathers, even though they fell into that very traditional World War II generation where sort of women were a, a bit more subservient than they are today to men, they never really put me in that box. And thankfully, they didn't because... Um, they sort of believed that I could do and be whatever I wanted to be, even though they had wives that were 
that fulfilled that sort of traditional gender norm. So I hope that answers your question. That was a very long-winded um, way to get there. But for me, I just knew that I was I was going to be a working woman. I knew that I just needed to hone in on what I was really good at and communication is something I'm I'm really good at. So how do I square that and then be able to to sit in roles that while you're you're working and you're making money as a result of working that you actually enjoy. And so um that's really what's led me to where I am today is just being really cognizant of what do I like to do? What am I good at? And what's going to get me to the next sort of rung of what I want to achieve in my career? Great. So I want to go back for just a moment to maybe a time when you were at your grandparents' house before you were in school. Do you have a specific memory that you can recall of seeing your grandparents interact with one another and how that really uh, impressed upon you or at least led you to believe this is the this is the path that my life could go, and this is this is what what I really want. I mean, I think um, I really I, I think from a young age it was it was very um, it was very stable when you went into their home. It was very consistent. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. So my dad was a diesel mechanic and had to be at work very early. And so if you know anything about Atlanta, the traffic is terrible there. Um, it's, it's probably one of the country's worst um, cities for traffic. So we lived about 25 or 30 minutes from my grandparents' house in downtown Atlanta. So he would always leave very early. We're talking, you know, 6, 6.30 in the morning from our house. And we would drive down there. I would go into my grandmother's house, my grandparents' house, and she was always waiting for me. So she was always up. She always had breakfast ready for me. My grandfather was always up. He read his Bible every single morning and was also a volunteer at his church. And so having that sort of warm, I, I call it like a, a hearth um, to come into where you're always welcome. It's always consistent. Um, they love having you there. You're, you know, you're just seen as really one of their own. So I really love that. And I love the idea that you could, as a homemaker, create this environment where people feel connected, they feel welcomed, they feel loved. And in terms of my grandfather, you know, he had worked his entire life from a very young age. I mean, he grew up on a farm and um, I think he had some familial struggles. My great grandfather was an alcoholic. So there were some financial issues in his family and he ended up having to drop out of high school um, in ninth grade to pursue work full time. And that led him to Atlanta. He was living in the suburbs on a farm in Alpharetta that led him to Atlanta where he then pursued work in the printing industry and was able to move up to, to manage a, a printing plant in Atlanta. Now I would say, the lesson I learned from that is, you know, he lived in a very different time, right? You can't, in today's world, um, become a manager of a plant with no high school diploma and no, perhaps no college degree. Um, and so education for me, I, knowing that that could never happen today, or even back when I was a kid, I just learned very, um, very early on how important school is. And none of the people in my family 
Um, they were all very blue collar on my dad's side of the family. None of the people in my family had graduated from college. So they had all, you know, my, my grandparents, three children had all graduated from high school. My dad had a technical degree because he was a diesel mechanic. And I think my aunt and uncle perhaps had some, um, technical or community college education, but they had never earned a bachelor's degree. And so seeing that and knowing that, I mean, education, once you have it, can never be taken away from you. And that just cemented in my mind, education is going to give me options. And while it all worked out for them, they all had jobs, they all were able to provide for their family. Um, Everybody did seemingly well you never know what could happen in the economy. You never know what could happen with your health. You just never know. And so getting your degree, to me, it was it was sort of a no-brainer. It was like, okay, I'm going to do this and, and it's going to happen. So I just, I wanted being able to see their life while I loved my grandparents and I loved the, the sense of warmth and love and um, nurturing that they gave me. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. I knew as a woman growing up, you know, in the 20th and 21st century, um, that I wanted to have options. And the only way to have options and economic power was to go to college. And that's what I did. And it, and it also sounds like you were, you were very, you wanted to pull all of the great things that you were learning along the way. Like, like you had shared about your grandmother, how she, you know, really welcomed you every single time your grandfather, you knew what, you knew what to expect when you went there. Yes. Did you find that much of your life was like that, even through grade school and college that you sort of, you were able to set these either, did you have routines or what, what was it for you that you were able to take that idea and bring that into your life? I mean, I think for me, um, growing up, it was, it was a challenging experience because my dad, I mentioned earlier that my great grandfather was an alcoholic. My dad was also an alcoholic. And so I grew up and I was the only child for eight years. So I grew up in a very sort of um, chaotic environment in the sense that it was, it was stable in some regards and then unstable in other regards because my dad with his alcoholism, it was very much a secret in terms of he was not a, the type of alcoholic that would go to a bar, for example and get really drunk and then engage with other people at bars and, you know, stumble home as you might see in a movie. Um, it was very much a closeted experience. So he was drinking, you know, every day when he would come home from work, but then he was pretending like he wasn't drinking. So you would see this change in his personality. You would see this change in his behavior. And, you know, as a kid, I think kids are a lot smarter than what people give them credit for. You start seeing the signs and you start trying to understand how are you going to adapt to this environment that you've been put in? Because me being an only child, it was really me and him. There was nobody else for me to sort of seek solace from. So, um, and they say, researchers say that children of alcoholics are some of the best employees in the world because they can adapt to any environment. And I do say there's probably some credence to that because I, I am very adaptable. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think having that stability with my grandparents, had I not had it, I don't know that I would have turned out the way that I did. I think um, 
you know, whether you believe in God or luck or just right place, right time, whatever you want to call it, divine intervention. I was really lucky in the, in the fact that I had really stable grandparents and my grandfather did know about my dad's alcoholism. So he was able to advocate and engage as best he could. But as we know, with any sort of addiction, the addict themselves has to realize they have a problem and that they need to seek help. And my dad, it took him, you know, many, 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 many years to, I think, even realize and come to grips with his own addiction. And he actually passed away um, on December 26th of this past year. So um, I, I, I think that was probably a blessing and a curse. I mean, you obviously don't choose your parents, you don't choose how you grow up, but um, growing up as, as the daughter of an alcoholic, it taught me some really valuable lessons that I apply to business on a regular basis. I'm sorry to hear about your father. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate that. It's been a, it's been a bit of a struggle just because, um, you know, it's, I don't think you're ever prepared for the death of a parent, but, um, he and I had really come to, to peace with our relationship in terms of the challenges that were put upon me as a child. And so I think I have a lot of peace with his passing. And I think when you also watch a parent struggle with any sort of addiction, it's really painful because you see all of the, the positive that they bring. Um, and the potential. And so, and I'm going to get emotional here. Um, and so it's really difficult to square, um, you know, potential versus the reality of the situation. And so, um, I am really at peace with, with his passing and, and I'm thankful for, um, being able to, to learn the lessons from his life because right? If we don't learn from people's successes and their, um, their failures, then, you know, what are we here for? And I think that like, it sounds like he really meant a lot to you and you saw so much great in him. And we all struggle with those areas where we to ourselves don't, don't reach that potential. And when there's family around us that see that we don't reach that and they want to support that, you know, knowing that we still make an impact on them, your dad still made an impact on you. So what were those things that you learned from him that you're able to bring into your life and that you, that you think about every day that you, the lessons that you've learned? Um, I think he was really, um, he, he really knew what he was good at and he stayed in his lane in terms of he was very technically minded. And so he never tried to be, you know, a scholar, you know, quoting Aristotle. Um, He never claimed to be um, a PhD professor. Um, He was very much, he knew that he could fix anything. He knew that he was a really great mechanic and he knew that he, he, he knew that he loved cars and that he loved trucks and that he loved, um, anything that would allow him to use his mechanical mind in his hands um, to fix things and, and to sort of surprise and delight people with the fact that if they brought him something that was broken, he's returning to it to them fixed. And so as a kid, um, because I am not technically minded, so 
I was always sort of in awe of anybody that could, you know, take apart a transmission or an engine um, or even a washing machine or a dryer down to sort of the, the nuts and bolts of the mechanism and then put it all back together and it miraculously works because um, I could not do that. And so um, I think that taught me a valuable lesson that you have to, again, do what you enjoy. I mean, we're on this earth for a really short amount of time. And, you know, last year also, I lost my grandfather in August and, you know, he was in law enforcement and was a chief of police um, and, and was the director of a couple of different law enforcement departments in Florida. So he was another example of somebody, um, and this was my mom's father, he was another example of somebody who sort of realized his passion very early on for law enforcement and changing people's lives for the better and doing good to citizens. And he stayed in that lane and he did it really, really well um, to the point of, you know, being inducted into the Law Enforcement Hall of Fame in the state of Florida. So um, those two men, along with my other grandfather, which was my dad's father that lived in Atlanta, um, they all just realized what they were good at and sort of plowed through their entire careers to be able to to do that every day. And I think you see so many people that sort of float from job to job or industry to industry, and they have no real direction or North Star. And they're just sort of going to work for the paycheck. And I luckily did not observe in my life people in my immediate family or or my grandparents, um, my grandfathers. I never observed them in jobs that they just despised and were sort of doing it just to make money. Um, so for me, that's always been. Whenever I feel a twinge inside of me of, you know, I'm not loving this or I need to make a change, I always follow that, even if it means having to take a step back and perhaps, you know, when I was younger in college, maybe you step back and do a retail job just to sort of get your bearings and understand, okay, what direction do I need to go in? Because you don't want to be in a job where you're working full time that you don't enjoy. I just, they're, they're, can be no worse voluntary hell than being in a position or a, you know a job that you do not like and you have to go to it every day. I mean, I just you spend more time at work than you do any place else. So to not enjoy it, you're not going to enjoy every minute of every day. But to not enjoy sort of the you know let's say eighty percent of what you do on a regular basis that can lead to other health issues. It can lead to depression. Um, and, and who wants to, to struggle with those things when you have the power to change it, only you can change your direction. Only you can go and find that new exciting opportunity, that new job, whatever it may be, starting your own business. You have the power to do that. So why not tap into that power instead of putting it in cruise control and letting other entities control your destiny? That's how I look at it. That's a really powerful point. Is there is there a time in your life or a, a moment that you really struggled with that? Maybe you f- if you experienced that and then what it took for you to shift that area of your life? Oh, for sure. Um, I When I was in college, I studied communications and I really loved journalism and still do um, and wanted to pursue being a television broadcaster. And I did do that. I went and I, after I graduated from college in 2003, I worked for the ABC affiliate in Atlanta 
um, which is WSB television, and worked in their local programming department. And I quickly realized that television news is run like a corporation. I mean, you have owners of that station, which with WSB TV, it's the Cox sisters. They own Cox Communications, very powerful conglomerate. And, you know, they want to make money. So how do you make money in television news? Well, you make money because you have advertisers. Well, how do you charge advertisers? Well, you charge advertisers based upon ratings. Well, how do you get ratings? Well, Unfortunately, our society is really drawn to very dramatic, sad stories for the most part, not in all cases, but for the most part. There's an old adage in TV news, if it bleeds, it leads. So, you know, you're seeing sort of decisions being made by management that sometimes are based upon decisions that are going to drive ratings, not necessarily because the news is the most thoughtful and the most helpful to the society in which it's serving. And so for me, I just felt like inside of myself, if I'm going to pursue a corporate career, I might as well be legit about it. You know, I don't want to claim to be a journalist or a television broadcaster and pursue that path, which is a pretty challenging road. um, When you step back and you look at all of the different, um, Challenges, challenges that you face moving market to market and trying to move up that rung if you're not really committed to the cause. And for me, I just felt like I, I wasn't aware as an undergrad that there was so much money and decision making that was going on behind the scenes. And that's just being a naive student um, that, that decides what news is going to be on the air. I mean, as a student, you think, Okay, you're going to be assigned to a story. You're gonna you're gonna expose corruption. You're going to tell people what's really going on in the world, and then you get into it, and you're sort of like you're observing these veterans because Atlanta's a top ten market, and you're going, okay, well they're they're working really bad hours because think about when the news comes on. It comes on at five in the morning, six in the morning, noon, and then five and six, and then eleven. So whatever shift these broadcasters are put on you know, they're working evenings, they're working weekends, they're working holidays. I mean, the news doesn't ever stop. So there's no, there's no off time. Like there's never a time that the news goes, it's Easter. We're going to take, take today off, no, no programming. I mean, it just doesn't happen. So you have to be really committed. And I just, when I really sat down and had a conversation with friends and family and, and just even myself, just sort of meditating on it and thinking about, am I passionate enough to pursue this road? The answer was no. So then you have to step back and go, well, what am I going to do? I was in my mid twenties at that point. And I realized, well, you can sort of take the tenets of communication. The fact that you, you love to public speak, you love to write, you love to engage with the media, but that doesn't mean that you have to be an actual journalist. And so what are the types of professions that can lead you down that road? And then marketing as well as public relations, sort of those sort of um, those two work streams within any corporation just sort of appealed to me. And from there, I pursued going into the automotive space because I, I had a family friend who recommended me to General Motors, sent my resume to them. They looked over it. And within two weeks, I had an interview. So it was a bit serendipitous. I didn't really choose automotive per se. It 
was just something that sort of happened. And I was placed in a sales role at General Motors and from there was exposed to the broader marketing communication side of the business that I didn't even know existed. You're listening to Made to Be, a podcast featuring extraordinary women in business produced by Philly Made Creative. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you believe you or somebody you know should be featured as a guest, please email madetobe at phillymadecreative.com. So what, what was your first uh, year like in General Motors, uh, learning this new industry, learning this new direction of, of your life, this new uh, profession? What were some of the major challenges that you experienced? I would say the major challenges were, you know, General Motors, this was in 2007. And so the Great Recession was about to hit. So it was post-Katrina. We obviously didn't know that the Great Recession was about to hit, but um, within a year of me being there, the recession hit and General Motors went bankrupt. So when you're working for a corporation that experiences that level of failure, it's really eye-opening because it's only going to happen once. I mean, they can't go bankrupt again. Um, And there's also a lot of lessons that to me were learned about um, employees and, and, and how employees have changed over the decades. In turn, and by that, I mean the whole idea of a pension and the whole idea of staying with one company your entire life, that was the old model of employment at some of these major corporations like General Motors. And so you're watching people through the bankruptcy where a lot of people were laid off. Um, You're watching a lot of people lose their jobs and they had sort of, you know, bought into this narrative that if I just do a good job and I'm loyal, this company will take care of me and I will never have to worry, you know, in in my elderly or senior years. And that was a big lesson for me because I was in my 20s then. And so I'm watching people that are my parents' age, quite frankly, um, in some cases lose their jobs and be walked out. And so, and they had been there, that's the only company they had ever worked for. And so for me, that just taught me a really valuable lesson that all of the jobs that I had had prior to General Motors, they, they made me a more well-rounded person. And they also taught me that no matter what happens, I am the creator of my own destiny. I am the person that decides what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it. I can never turn over that control to an entity because anytime you turn over your, your personal control and your direction over to anybody, whether that be, you know, a spouse, whether it be a best friend, whether it be a company, that typically will not end well because you are you're basically saying i will do whatever it is to please you or to make you happy and in return i expect you know, 100% loyalty and that's just not the world that we live in because bad things happen unfortunate circumstances occur really difficult decisions have to be made and doesn't mean 
doesn't mean that that person or that entity isn't loyal. I mean, I don't know, that's up for debate, but I would say that um, in some cases it doesn't. It just means that the business has changed. Um, maybe that business has, has gone away. Maybe direction has changed in terms of goals and objectives for the enterprise. And so, you know, it, it just becomes a challenge when people have, I, I tend to use the word entitlement, um, where they just expect that a company is going to take care of them. And I have just never, I have never gone into any job expecting that. It's a nice surprise and delight. Um, it's a nice to have. It's not a have to have because I think it's unrealistic this day and age. I think during my grandparents' generation, you know, World War II generation, that was 100% a legitimate expectation. But we are, you know, that was pre-globalization. We are now a global, you know, in, in, in many regards, our economy is global. So therefore, what happens in the Middle East, what happens in China, what happens in Africa, it impacts all of us. And technology has really changed everything. And so those were those were challenges that, you know, my grandparents' generation, they didn't have to worry about because those challenges had not yet presented themselves. But we can't go back. We are where we are as as a as a global economy. And so how do we as individuals fit into that global economy? I think it's just having a personal brand and making your own way through the world based upon your own morals, your own values, your own hopes, your own dreams, and doing the best that you can with the opportunities that are presented to you. I noticed on your LinkedIn profile, you have your personal mission statement. Uh, I'm just going to read it for a moment. And then I'd love to hear like, what, it, what does it mean to you? Okay. So it says on here, your personal mission statement is to be a voice for the advancement of women in my family, my workplace, and in my community to utilize all of the talents that God has given me to fulfill my life's purpose. I will utilize my talent in communication throughout every as every area of my life to ensure that all who encounter me will be heard. And throughout each of these encounters, I will be my authentic self. Yes. That took me a very long time to write that because I wanted to be really descriptive and, and very clear that, so that anyone that read my profile um, understood by reading that exactly who I am. And I think it really does encapsulate who I am and what I stand for. I think when you work for, I've worked for a couple of corporations, currently Ford prior to that, General Motors. And those companies teach you a lot because they're really massive enterprises. You know, they have thousands of employees around the world. And so it's really humbling in the sense that you're one of tens of thousands of people working towards the mission of whatever that company is. And you as an individual have a voice and you as an individual have a brand. And the only way for people to be able to understand you, um, understand what you're wanting to do with your career, um, are able to advocate for you is for you to come forward and say, this is who I am. This is, this is my authentic self. And that is really easy to say, but it's very difficult to do. Um, and I say that because many people want to conform to sort of an idealistic mold or model of what they believe success looks like within the enterprise. 
Um, and, and in many cases, it's, you know, going along to get along. It's not ruffling any feathers. It's not raising any difficult questions. It's sort of keeping it very surface level and very happy and managing up better than you manage down. And I just, having observed and learned and, and seen a lot in my time in the automotive industry and working for two different companies who, who are very, they're competitors and they're very different in, in many regards. Um, I just learned very early on that, that life is, is too short to be something I'm not. I mean, if, if you do ultimately succeed and let's say what you view as the pinnacle of success of success is to be the CEO of a company and you haven't been your authentic self as you've moved through the ranks to get to that point, it's going to be pretty sad when you hit that, that pinnacle of success. And let's say you get that role and nobody knows who you are because you've been pretending to be something that you're not to get to that ultimate goal. And you can't even enjoy it because you haven't been yourself the entire time to, to get there. And so for me, I just, I have been very, I've been very cognizant in my mind about Yes, I am a feminist. Yes, I believe in female equality and empowerment. I will not apologize for that. And I will not, I will not be something that I'm not. And I won't dumb myself down. I won't try to be quote unquote, like a man um, in terms of, you know, I do, I like style. I like fashion. I like bold colors. You know, those are, those are things that I'm unwilling to change to fit into some sort of um, idealistic employee that that someone in a position of power expects me to be. Luckily, no one has come to me and said, we expect you to be X, Y, and Z at either company that I've worked for. But I think there is sort of this underlying current of pressure where, you know, if somebody doesn't look like you, if somebody doesn't sound like you, if you're the only one in the room that is quote unquote different, that there's this underlying pressure to conform. And I've just never, I've never resigned myself to do that right, wrong, or indifferent. You know, it, and it could have hurt me behind the scenes. I'll never know. It could have helped me behind the scenes. I'll never know. But I go to bed every night, really happy with who I am. And I wake up every morning, really happy about who I am. And I know that I'm moving forward towards goals and aspirations that completely fit what I want to do with my life and fully confident that whatever challenges may come, may come my way, I can face them. I love that. I love, I love that you have that as a, a mission and that you're willing to share it. I think that uh, at least in experiences that I've had for myself, it's I write these things down and then I think, all right, this is great, but until I can actually be that, I can't, I can't share that. Or I go and share it, and then I can't be that. And, and there's this, uh, I think that we struggle with how to, be, how to be who we are and how to take care of the people around us. Yeah, and, and you're not, and just because you set a mission statement doesn't mean that you're going to live up to it every single day. I mean, none of us are perfect. And, I, and, and similar to corporations, corporations are made up of people people are imperfect. Therefore, corporations are imperfect. So it's, it's always this struggle of 
you know, always striving for perfection that you will never achieve, but that doesn't mean that you stop trying. And so that's how I look at it as um, a working professional. I am always going to have things that I need to work on. I'm always going to have challenges and, and I may make mistakes as I face those challenges. But as long as I keep my self-awareness high and, and also I'm very, I'm very direct with people about who I am from, from, you know, my first interaction with them. So it's not a surprise. I think all will turn out as it should. Um, you know, I, I don't ever want to have any regrets of, I wish I should have said this to this person, or I wish I would have been more upfront with this person. You know, I, I'm also smart enough to know that sometimes when you are that direct and that self-aware that it can put people on their heels a bit, because I would say it's not the majority of people that you engage with who are fully, you know, confident, very direct, willing to take on challenges, um, willing to face difficulties that, you know, most would just say, let's just not deal with it. You know, let's not deal with gender inequality. Let's not deal with racism. Let's not deal with um, the fact that, you know, that there are more men in positions of power in many of the Fortune 500 companies than women. You know, I'm, I am willing to take on those challenges and have those difficult conversations because I know that if we don't, it will not get better. It will only get worse. And we can't, as a gender, afford for things to get worse because we need advocates. And, uh, you know, the only way to get advocates is to really engage with men and explain the realities that we face so that they can be sponsors and supporters to make things more equal in the workplace. We can't do it on our own. And so if we're not having those difficult conversations, and, and that is something as a feminist, I'm really passionate about you know, seeking to understand. If we can't get men to to seek to understand us so that things get better, you know, we're in a lot of trouble as a country. We're in a lot of trouble because, you know, typically corporations and the way that they operate are reflective of government and vice versa. And we know the lack of female leadership that we have. I mean, we have more women in Congress right now than ever, but I would argue that that's probably a result of a lot of momentum behind the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement. Okay, well, why did those movements start? Well, in a lot of cases, it started because women in government and women in corporations have been standing up and saying, I am being mistreated. I am being marginalized. And I don't think a lot of men in those positions of power in government and in corporations, they either didn't realize it was going on or they contributed to it going on because back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, where many women were resigned to be administrative assistants or in more quote unquote female type professions like teaching or nursing, um, you know, they had full autonomy to be able to to treat women as, as they wished. And so we're in a different time now where more women are graduating from college than men. And, um, women expect and are demanding equal pay for equal work and they're demanding to be considered for opportunity. And that's not a bad thing. You know, there's opportunity for all. And if we truly believe that 
our our customers should be a reflection should be reflected in in the corporations of which they're transacting their business then then we've got to open our eyes and we've got to give more opportunity to people that don't look like us and so i always try to make a really conscious effort to seek out the marginalized in whatever environment i'm in whether that's people of color whether that's uh, people of a different sexual orientation um it could be you know, the elderly, it could be the disabled. I mean, whatever environment I'm in, I always try to observe and see, you know, who's sitting alone, who doesn't feel like they're part of the group, who can I seek to to understand and learn more about their life, where they come from, what their challenges are. And when you start asking the questions of those individuals, it's amazing how much nine times out of 10, they're going to open up because they feel like someone is seeking to understand them and, and cares about their story and wants them to be heard. And that's a basic human need is to be heard. Yeah. And, and how do you deal with that in what's perceived as a male dominated industry of the automotive industry? How do you see that, um, either having that transformed into being more accepting, or are you still experiencing some of that marginal marginalization? What is that like for you? I mean, there are definitely challenges, I think, for women across not just the automotive industry, but I think a lot of different industries. I think because it's cars, people immediately go to, that's a male-dominated industry. But if you step back and you look at a lot of different industries that are male-dominated just because it's been men over the decades who have been put in positions to ascend and run those, um, those industries, for example, banking, very male dominated. The legal system, you know, whether it be judges or lawyers that are on the prosecution side of things, or even lawyers that work on the defense side of things, could be for corporations, it could be um, just law firms on their own. The law in general, very male dominated. I have a lot of friends that are attorneys and they struggle with that. I mean, medicine, doctors, male dominated. Um, you know, so I don't really, I try to, to not fall into the trap of saying, okay, it's automotive, it's male dominated. I mean, it really is a crisis, I would say, of a lack of female representation across all industries, with the exception of what I was saying earlier, those traditional female industries of nursing and teaching. Um, I think we we are doing well there as as women, probably over indexing on the number of women in those those um, professions just based on tradition. But um, I would say that Mary Barra becoming the first CEO, female CEO of an automaker, I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. So when that happened at General Motors, that was after I had left General Motors. Um, but just understanding the impact of what that was going to do for the industry as a whole, I was, I was very hopeful in that moment. And so I hope that what she's able to do in, in terms of her leadership, the way she treats people, obviously the bottom line, because it is a publicly traded company, profitability, um, stock price, things of that nature. I hope it sends a signal to other corporations, automotive and non-automotive alike, that women can run Fortune 500 corporations 
they can maintain their integrity while they're doing it and they can elevate other people, whether they be minorities or not, just good people who know how to lead and know how to treat people, that 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 is possible. And when you look at what she's done from a an awareness perspective on the inequality of um, men and women in leadership roles, she has put her money where her mouth where her money is in terms of her CFO is, I believe, the youngest and and the first female CFO at that company. Um, so she's really investing in women, and that's what it takes. I mean, we always talk about how do we get women to have more opportunity in corporate America? Well, again, as I said earlier, it takes sponsorship. You know, men have to be secure enough in themselves to say, I'm going to invest in somebody that doesn't look like me. It's very easy and it can be very seductive to look for people that look like you because it becomes an ego thing. It's like, okay, oh, I'm a 55-year-old Caucasian male. I like to play golf. I like to drink scotch. You know, I like to go to the country club. There's a brotherhood or a fraternity type vibe between us. Let me sponsor this guy and make sure that he gets in front of all the right leaders and gets all the right accolades so that he can be up for his next promotion. And we have to really be cognizant of stopping that because, you know, in many cases, there are a lot of people across different races, different genders, uh, ethnicities that are fully competitive for a lot of these roles. They're just not getting the sponsorship that they need for whatever reason. It could be just that they're not visible enough to leadership. It could be that the leadership doesn't like that person based upon their personality traits and there's there's a conflict there. It could be that they don't understand the background of that individual. But that to me just reflects poor leadership if those are the types of decisions that are being made because it is a leader's job and a leader's responsibility to get to know as many people as possible within the enterprise and understand what are their morals, what are their values, what are their hopes, what are their dreams, how do they believe in leading people to to a, a brighter day and a happier tomorrow? Um, what are they going to do when difficult times come? How are they going to communicate with their staff? How are they going to deliver bad news? How are they going to deliver good news? Are they going to celebrate successes? These are all questions that should be asked of people that are going to be put into positions of power because you are impacting people's lives. And, you know, it's not, it's not always an easy task because management is difficult. But if we're just putting people in positions based upon likability and based upon having the same hobbies, you know, we're in a lot of trouble because that should not be the reason somebody gets a job. It should not be because there is a, a personal friendship that is trumping capability because that puts everyone that doesn't have that personal relationship at a disadvantage. And there's no way to, there's no way to compete. And that happens, that happens a lot. I mean, I have a, a lot of friends, female friends that work for a lot of different companies, automotive and non-automotive. And it is systemic, which I think is why women are really becoming vocal and unapologetic in many regards saying, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm not going to put up with this treatment. I mean, I don't know if you read Susan Fowler's blog that went viral about her experience at Uber, but I mean, 
Uber was supposed to be sort of this Silicon Valley darling. And, you know, when you read her account of how she was treated, this is a smart, young, fresh engineer who wanted to move up and wanted to be able to advance her career and was mistreated horribly by leadership and, and not being, not, not even heard when she brought those grievances forward. It led to the point of her having to, to resign. I mean, that's, that's incredible. So a lot of people will say that it's, you know, the old traditional corporate entities that have all of these problems, but I would argue that it's systemic, whether it's an old company, whether it's a, a young company, it all comes down to leadership. And there are bad leaders everywhere. And it's just, it, it takes a lot of courage for those in very senior positions to, you know, have their own, I would say their own will to weed out the bad and to promote the good. And sometimes, you know, leaders, they don't like conflict and they don't want to take on those challenges, but I would argue that's why they're put in the positions that they're in. You're listening to Made to Be, a podcast featuring extraordinary women in business produced by Philly Made Creative. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you believe you or somebody you know should be featured as a guest, please email made to be at phillymadecreative.com. You know, you talk about sponsorship or another phrase could be mentorship. If you think about those younger companies, think about who's on their board, who has invested in these, in these companies, who's investing in the leadership. And I think those are things where we may be missing or people may be missing that piece of it. Those are people that are mentoring and sponsoring the leadership. So if you look at the system of it, that you've got people that are passing those traditions down the line. So there is no company, no brand that is immune to this. So it's about picking that right mentorship or that right sponsorship. You know, so how, what advice do you have for, let's say, sponsors, people who may be in their 50s or 60s, they may be white males who have been in their industry for a long time. What advice do you have for them in continuing that leadership in, in building up the legacy? Well, I think first and foremost, they have to care. I mean, they have to care about having a legacy and it has to be authentic. You know, I, I would actually rather someone say, I don't care and I'm not willing to be a sponsor because that's their authentic belief than try to be something that they're not. There's nothing worse than a disingenuous person who is doing it more for their ego and more for um, what other people think or will say about them than really doing it because they believe it in their heart and they want to make a difference. So that would be number one. Second thing I would say is that you have to, you have to create connection. And by creating connection, you have to have engagement. And that engagement needs to come through you as a leader taking time and saying, you may have just seen a young woman give a presentation in a meeting, and she did a really great job reaching out to her and saying, I saw you in the meeting today present XYZ. You did a great job. I'd love to catch up with you, grab a cup of coffee and talk about what you would like to do next with your career and find ways in which I could help sponsor you get to that next goal. 
you know, it's about using your power for good. And I think sometimes people just believe that, quote unquote, the system will take care of you. Well, the system is made up of people and the system is made up of good and bad decision makers. And so if you're as a leader who is leading that system, um, you're not taking time to reach out to those that are in lower level positions than you within the company to congratulate, reward, and find ways to sponsor, then shame on you. Because to me, that should be number one on your list. If you're in a senior leadership position, chances are you are not doing the grumble or grimble work of, of what many middle and low management people are doing. You're not putting together the presentations. You're not having you know all of the staff meetings to get the project done. You're not having to meet with suppliers. You're not having to, to do all of the work that goes into um, launching major programs. You are facilitating the capital to make those programs happen. You're greenlighting the capital. You're greenlighting the headcount to get the work done. But if you're in a senior leadership position, your number one job is people. And if you're not making time for them and you find yourself doing a lot of paperwork and a lot of presentations and a lot of what your direct report should be doing, then that says a lot about you as a leader because that means that you are not empowering, you are not being clear about who's doing the work and you're micromanaging. And you've got to to unleash talent and to show to let people show you what they can really do. You've got to pull back, you've got to step away, you've got to observe, you've got to engage. And you've got to really understand people's strengths and weaknesses so that and their passions so that you can put them in the right place. And I, I sometimes think doers in a lot of these corporations get promoted to levels of senior leadership that they're not prepared for. You know, they've been a doer their whole life. They've launched a product. They've launched a program. And it's been high visibility. And it's been well-received. And so therefore the senior leadership team believes, oh, wow, well, they can, they can manage people. These, are not, these skills are not transferable. Just because you manage a program does not mean that you can manage people because it takes a lot, of, a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of energy, and a lot of care. And not everybody has that skill set. But unfortunately, the way that corporations are structured you know, if you want more pay, you've got to move up the rung and manage people. And I think human resources across the Fortune 500 has a massive opportunity to to look at the, the pay scales that they have and to say, okay, can we have, you know, a similar pay scale for someone who can be a subject matter expert in a particular area, but they are not managing people so we're not dangling this carrot of making them manage people as the only way to move ahead in their career. I think that's a huge opportunity because that's not the way many companies are structured today. It's, it's almost, you have to move up and manage people if you want to make more money and you want to have more ability to, to you know, evoke change within the enterprise. And there's got to be another formula that perhaps human resources managers have not unleashed yet and really need to think about. And how many people do you, would you say that you manage and do you have a daily practice or weekly practice that helps you in uh, developing yourself as a leader? I manage probably, I would say about seven different 
suppliers um, in my role. So I work with different individuals who manage different pieces of the business for my work stream. And that has been really interesting because what they're not Ford Motor Company employees. So I'm not managing someone's career at Ford, but what I am managing is all of these different suppliers who we are spending a lot of money with to deliver a particular product. I'm managing how they get that done. I'm managing, you know, the individuals that could be delivering that project, getting the best out of them, knowing that I don't manage their their day-to-day and I am not I'm not their direct boss. I'm more of a, an indirect boss in the sense that I am their, their client. Um, so that's been really interesting because it's a variety of ages. It's a variety of um, male versus female, um, people that have been in the automotive industry their whole career, people that have not. So it's been really interesting and rewarding in the sense that you're able to directly engage with those who deliver really positive results for you. And on the flip side, if they're not, you're able to coach and counsel and say, what can we do to make this better next time? And that's been really good for me because I think people are seeking to understand if they are doing a good job, what they can do better. And if they're doing a bad job, how can they change? They don't want it. They don't want someone to just point out their failures. They want them to point out their failures and inform them on how you believe they can not make the same mistake the next time. So um, that's been a really rewarding and interesting experience. Um, And I would say people, some of my suppliers that have gone on who have left their, their roles and have gone on to do new things, a couple of them have reached out to me and said specifically you've had such a positive impact on, you know, what I thought was possible, which then led me to this new opportunity that I didn't think was possible. And there's really no better feeling than, than hearing from somebody who says that you had an impact on their life and you taught them something that they didn't know before about leadership. That's really rewarding. In terms of daily practice, I started this, um, this practice, uh, I guess it was about three or four years ago where I bought a jar and um, the jar has a chalkboard on it. And every, at the beginning of every year, I write the year on the chalkboard. And then every day when I come home from work, I write at least one thing, if not more, but at least one thing that I'm grateful for. And I put it in the jar. And then at the end of the year, I open the jar up and read everything that's happened throughout the year that I'm grateful for. And it's amazing what you forget as a year progresses. So from January 1st to December 31st, a lot obviously happens. And, you know, some days are more challenging than others to figure out what you're grateful for. But it is a great practice because you're then paying attention to everything that happens throughout the day. And you're seeking to find what is going to be that at least one thing that you write down at the end of the night that you're grateful for. And so you become more present and you also become more grateful for those that are around you because you're looking for positivity. You're looking for, you know, hope. You're looking for things that are going to, to make you feel like what you're doing is worthwhile. And that has been a really great practice for me along with, I started working with, um, 
just a daily Bible verse. I have this this quote that or this book of Bible verses that are sort of broken out into quotes per day. And I've started reading that. I keep it in my kitchen so that when I'm getting things ready every morning, whether it be my coffee or lunch, I can read it quickly. Um, it's not a huge time commitment, but it just gets my mind right and sets my day up for success. And so what is next for you, Rachel? What's next in your development, either as a leader, uh, either at Ford? Um, like, what is that next thing for you? Well, the, the big next thing for me is actually, I'm going to be taking an educational leave from Ford. So my last day will be July 31st. And then beginning August 1st, I will take an educational leave through January 1st of 2021 to pursue my graduate degree on a full-time basis. So I'm going to be relocating from the Detroit area to Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, have enrolled at Queens University of Charlotte, which is a private liberal arts university. It's about five minutes from downtown Charlotte. And um, I will be getting my graduate degree in communication and media studies. So that is just a formal way of saying public relations, um, because I feel like with all of the marketing experience that I've gotten, um, PR and marketing are so intertwined that I really need to have further development in the PR space and really get grounded in the tenets of public relations and really hone my writing skills. Um, so this is going to give me a really good opportunity to learn, you know, in an educational environment and being that will be my full-time job essentially is to go to school and to get, to get that done. So, um, my first day of class is August 26th. So I'm really excited about that. And, um, I will be, I will be a full-time student fall semester of this year and then spring, summer, and fall of next year. So, um, it's a little daunting in terms of, you know, moving and, you know, winding down my role at Ford to take a leave from Ford to pursue this, but it's really exciting. I think, you know, for me, my ultimate goal in my career is to become a chief communications officer for a Fortune 500 company. So to have this graduate degree um, and to be able to become a subject matter expert while not on the job, a subject matter expert, because I haven't held a PR role for any company, but to become a subject matter expert in terms of education and then be able to apply it because um, I can also work part-time while I'm on leave from Ford for another company, um, as long as it's not a competitor of Ford's, that will allow me to apply what I'm learning, whether it be an internship or just a part-time job for a company in the PR space, that will allow me to apply what I'm learning in the classroom to an on-the-job type of environment. So that's a big piece of development that I've been craving to 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 find a way to, to understand and, and to be able to fully commit. And I, after having thought through what my options are and looking at meeting with Ford's HR department and understanding the policies um, and ways to go about doing this, finally landing on this opportunity and being able to thankfully use a policy that exists at Ford to pursue school full time. I'm really grateful and I, I think it will do wonders for my career. So I'm excited. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. Yeah, it's going to be, I think it's going to be great. I mean, to, anytime you're able to fully commit 
your mind and and not be conflicted because I I did start out going part time to school and then working full time and for me personally a lot of people can do it but for me personally I just felt very conflicted because you want to be you know an A student and you also want to be an A employee and it's really difficult to do both well when you're being pulled in a lot of different directions because you know work is very demanding and school is very demanding and so how do you to how do you square that and for me it was it was pursuing an alternative avenue, which was to take a leave and just pursue it full time and get it done. Terrific. So do you have any final words of wisdom or pieces of advice for women who are developing their careers, who may be considering a career shift or who are in leadership roles? I would just say that the best exercise that I've gone through to pursue I wouldn't call what I'm doing a career shift. I would just say, I call it a step change is to really sit down and understand what do you ultimately want to do with your career? You may not have the job title figured out. You may not know, you know, exactly what it is per se, because maybe the job doesn't even exist today. But if you had a clean sheet of paper and could say at the end of my career, the pinnacle of it looks like X it then becomes a lot easier to start backing into, okay, well, to get to that, I need to do this role before that one. And then to get to that role, I need to do... It's almost like you start backing into the different types of roles and opportunities that you need to achieve that ultimate goal. And that's what I did last year. You know, I just sort of sat down with a clear or a blank sheet of paper and said, okay, if I want to be a chief communications officer for a Fortune 500 company... What does that look like? And I started looking at different chief comms officers across different companies, automotive and non-automotive, because that role is very different at each of those companies um, that I looked at. Sometimes they incorporate marketing. Sometimes it's purely PR. And so once I understood that, it was, okay, well, I need to do all of these different roles in theory to be able to get to that goal. And so knowing that I had a big hole in my development in the PR space, that then led me to say, okay, could I go to school full time? And then from there, researching the policies at Ford to understand what exists if I want to do this. And so understanding your ultimate goal to me is the best exercise that one can do because then you don't feel so lost and you're not so reliant on, you know, random opportunities to pop up in the company that you're working for, or even outside the company you might be working for, um, to get you to your next sort of, um, opportunity for development. You can then become a little bit more in control of your own future. That's great. Thank you so much, Rachel. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing everything that you have. And I really, uh, I look forward to seeing what's next for you after your, after your full-time school schooling and uh, seeing you in your chief communications officer role. Oh, thank you so much. This has been really awesome. And I appreciate you inviting me onto the podcast. Made to be is a production of Philly Made Creative. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you like this episode, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or Anchor, and stay tuned for future episodes.